I nearly didn't make it here this morning. I was driving down the Pacific Motorway, saw the Welcome to New South Wales sign, and just started panicking. So I keep going, take my next exit that was available to me, and start going back through, see the police sirens and the SES, and I was like, goodness me, and I was praying, and I was like, maybe I'll have to zoom in live from my car at the border, who knows, but nice to actually be here. Um, my name's Alex Stark, for those who've not met me, pastor at Brisbane location, and I've been there three to four months now. I grew up in Brizzy, it's just a joy to be back, and the people in Brizzy are just beautiful, and it's an absolute privilege to be part of the wider New Life family as well. Um, let me kick off with a bit of a story. In the Second World War, the German government, they sponsored an effort to unify Protestant churches into a single church that uh, supported the, um, pro, it was the pro-Nazi church. And afterwards, some churches and pastors became suspicious of this act from government and they got a bit, I guess, um, nervous about the church's quick support of the Nazi government. Um, they thought that Christians were at risk of idolizing the German state and were at risk of confusing the rule of the Fuhrer with the sovereignty of God. Uh, so under the co-leadership of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an opposition movement grew called the Confessing Church. And the Confessing Church, at the height of the Second World War, they gave safe housing to the disadvantaged. They protested Nazism. They underwent severe persecution. And more importantly, they pastored some people through one of the darkest moments in modern history. And one story of one pastor survives. And the pastor's name is Ilse Fredericksdorf, a woman. We don't know much about her, but a book that was written in German at the end of the Second World War, in the preface to that book, it recounts a bit of her story. And I just want to read you some of the language from that book. It says this about Ilse Fredericksdorf. She was a young girl belonging to the Confessing Church. And it said this, Through our congregation, she came to take up theological study. She studied in our theological college and in Basel with Karl Barth. During the war, she remained in congregations northeast of Berlin, in that region where the last battle prior to Berlin was waged. And then it says this, She was so much in demand for her pastoral skills that the major of the troop repeatedly requested her aid among the troops. Later, she led the displaced congregations with the word of God, went back to the hunger zone as much as possible, and after she had buried hundreds of the thousands who perished, succumbed herself to starvation. Ilsa, she's a female pastor, a leader in the confessing church, and someone whose life and gifting soar to the furthering of God's kingdom in a really dark moment in history. So today, we're looking at the question of women in leadership, and more in Particularly, we're looking at the question of women in church leadership, because that's the question that gets raised when we ask this question in the church. And before I sort of step into this sermon, I just want to acknowledge that even as I start to speak about where we're going, there might be a number of different reactions in the room. One reaction could be just a sense of nervousness. You might have a conclusion you have about this topic, and you might be nervous that whatever I preach on right now might misrepresent the conclusion you've come to, as I portray what this church subscribes to. You might be nervous this morning. You might be really excited. For you, you've actually just been longing for a moment to explore this topic within the safety of a family um, of the church and to have someone unpack the scriptures and talk through this topic. You might be excited. You might be absolutely dumbfounded. Um, you might ask the question, women in leadership? 
do, do we really need to address that in the 21st century? Like back in 2012, we had a female prime minister. She did a great job. She, you know, preached that scathing um, speech to um, the member of the opposition in parliament. Women can clearly lead. Do we really need to talk about this? That might be one of your questions. Um, but for others of you, you might be angry and hurt. Um, the fact that I'm a male myself addressing this question, it, you know, raises questions for you. Um, there's a number of different people in a diverse array of reactions that could be present in the room right now. So just let me just acknowledge that. This topic is emotional, it's complex, it's dense, and no one's jealous of me right now <laughs> to have to address this. It's big, but it needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed because women in church leadership is not something on which the church agrees. It's actually something on which the church debates constantly, even in our day. Some people think, let me boil it all down, some people think that women can't be in any form of pastoral leadership in the church. That's one position people take. Another position people take is that women can be in pastoral leadership so long as it isn't the role of senior pastor or ordained pastor. That's another position that people take. Another position that people take is that God calls and equips men and women equally into pastoral leadership so that there should be no office or role or gifting that's off-limits for women. That's a different position that people take. And here's why this is interesting. It's interesting because you hear a story like Ilse Fredriksdorf, the story of a woman leader in the confessing church throughout the Second World War who was in so much demand for her pastoral skills, and you have to conclude one of three things. Either that she's an example of disobedience because you think that God has reserved pastoral leadership for men only, or that she's an exception to the rule because she found herself in extreme historical circumstances where there was no men available to lead, so she herself was called or as an expression of that to which the Scriptures have always given a trajectory for and what God has always invited the church into. And I've actually held all three views in my life, just to be honest about it. A few years ago when I was at Bible college, I was asked to write a paper on this question. Should the church allow women to be pastors? And my answer was simple. No, at the time. At the time, I read everything I could on the topic, I spoke with all the people that I trusted. I enlisted, you know, trusted mentors and friends. I read books on it. I read all the necessary passages that I thought I needed to. I thought that I did my due diligence, submitted my paper, got a HD, and concluded that women are equal before God in status, but distinct in their role in the church. Five years ago, though, I began to change my mind. I don't think now that women leading is an example of disobedience. I don't think that women leading is an exception to the rule. I actually think it's the very expression of that which God had always intended his church to traffic in and experience. And this is actually what got me excited about the prospect of pastoring at New Life. See, at New Life, we fundamentally believe that God calls and equips both men and women to exercise their gifts and their leadership in all echelons of church life. We don't believe that there's an echelon of leadership out of bounds for women, We don't think that there's a type of ministry gifting that the Holy Spirit reserves for just men. We believe as a church uh, that it is those who are gifted by the Spirit, regardless of whether they're men or women, that God uses to take his mission forward, to minister the gospel to the world that needs it, and to give glory to God in the church. And so today, I just wanted to share two things that helped me change my mind. What are they? One, the pull of the biblical evidence, and two, a passage which I... Reread 
the pool of biblical evidence and the passage which I reread. As you can tell, this sermon's already going to be quite dense, but we make no apologies for that because this is a series in which we're exploring crucial conversations uh, that we ask as we explore life and faith and God. So first, the pool of the biblical evidence. The challenge I had when I was preparing this sermon was not what to put in. I wasn't scrounging around for pieces of evidence that would help me make my case. It was actually what to leave out. There's actually such a weight of biblical evidence, both modeling women in ministry and celebrating and equipping women in ministry. Let me just give three broad examples. Take all the women prophets in the Bible. Let me name a few. There's Miriam, Moses' older sister. There's Deborah, who who leads Israel as judge and prophet. There's Huldah, who the great king Josiah, back in the day when Israel was going, undergoing heaps of reforms, Josiah consulted Huldah, seeking God's will. There's Isaiah's wife. There's Enna, in the start of the New Testament, who prophesied about Jesus in the early chapters of Luke's gospel. And then there's Philip's daughters, identified in Acts 21. And then even if you go to 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul puts a bunch of boundaries in place around what it looks like to prophesy in the church, that very boundary itself assumes the existence of women prophets. There's a lot of prophets in the Bible, and a lot of them are females. Now, the thing about prophecy, this is the point to note. The thing about prophecy is that the going definition of it is that it's the declaration of the word of the Lord. And some people want to say, who hold a different position to new life, that women can prophesy, but they can't teach. They can declare the word of the Lord, but they can't do it with a Bible. And that's actually the ironic thing. But if you say women can prophesy, which is the declaration of the word of the Lord, particularly in biblical times, but they can't preach from a pulpit with the Bible and teach authoritatively, you're essentially saying that women, can't, women can teach so long as they don't use the Bible to do so. Now, when I went to Bible college, one of the key things that people taught me in preaching was, actually, Alex, your job is not to share your own ideas or your own subjective experience of God. Your job is to unpack the Scriptures. And so when, Paul, when the Bible assumes that women can prophesy, it very much assumes that women can declare the word of the Lord. And praise God that we've got a Bible to do that now, which they, back in the time, wouldn't have had the Bible that we ourselves have because, obviously, you get the New Testament um, added onto it. Moving on, take Paul's female co-laborers in gospel ministry. In Romans 16, Paul sends his final greetings to the churches in Rome, and in it, Paul commends the ministry of women more than men. Now, if you've ever studied like church leadership or leadership in general, you'll know that if you want to change a culture, you need to celebrate the things that you want to permeate that culture. And it's fascinating that in Romans 16, one of the greatest theological texts that have like, you know, been passed down through the church, Paul celebrates the ministry of women more than men. It's just a fascinating point to note. Um, I want to pull out two names and two special mentions from this list. Um, first, in verse 7, Paul says these words. He says, Greet Andronicus and Junior, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Andronicus and Junior. Now, here's the cool thing. Junior's a female. Junior is a woman. There is a debate around this, just to be, just to be frank about it. Um, in the 20th century, a number of Bible translators... They sought to argue that Junior was actually a male. Um, But this claim goes against all the evidence we have from the early church. It goes against all the uh, translations we have from before the modern period. And even some scholars who argued that Junior was a male apostle have actually retracted their arguments in more recent years. Um, The other debate is whether it's best translated in a way that identifies Junior as an apostle or whether Junior is known by the apostles. And there's a debate there. Um, But if so, here's what that means. Um, It means that Paul is just saying something really meaningless at the end of the text. Why would Paul identify Junior 
um, as an apostle? Why would he identify just as someone known to the apostles? It makes very little sense. Um, and so I and a bunch of other scholars that are way smarter than me think that Junior was an apostle and that she was a female apostle. And here's what that means. It means that Paul celebrates women evangelists, church planters, and leaders, because that's what apostles were. First mention. Second mention, Paul entrusts a very unlikely figure to deliver the book of Romans. Um, Before I share who it is, just think about what the book of Romans is for a second. Rome is a group of house churches made up of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, It was a strategic location. Paul intended to use Rome as his missionary base for further mission to the West, places like Spain. He needs to help them understand the relationship between Jews and Gentiles so that this church, now made up of a plethora of different demographics, would themselves unify under King Jesus. He can't go there himself. He's in prison. So who does Paul send with one of the greatest theological texts that have been passed down through church history? Who does Paul send? He could have sent Timothy. He had a great relationship with Timothy. could have sent Titus. Great relationship there. Who does Paul send? He sends Phoebe. Verse 1 identifies Phoebe. Now, imagine that you're bearing a letter to a group of house churches in the first century. You deliver it, they begin reading it, and just imagine you yourself are reading the text. It's pretty confusing sometimes, and you've got questions. What are your questions? One, what's the righteousness of God? Two, what does faith in Jesus Christ mean? Three, how does what Jesus did on the cross actually mean anything for me? Four, what does faith mean, chapter four? Five, what's, what's hope? Six, what's sin and how Jesus does what he does to, you know, how do we make sense? You've got questions. And the question is, who answers those questions? From what we know of first century letter bearing, the most likely candidate for the person to answer those questions would have been Phoebe. Most historically probable. And what does that mean? It means that Paul entrusts his letter to a woman who herself becomes the first port of call to questions that are raised when the text gets read. In other words... To put it in cheeky terms, she's the first biblical exegete for the book of Romans. And she's a woman. And Paul sends her. It doesn't just mean that Paul permits women teaching and having authority in the church. It means that he celebrates it. And he intentionally sets it up. But finally, here's the kicker for me. It's the way that Jesus treated women. Um, One of the famous stories from the Gospels is the story of Jesus dining with Mary and Martha. Luke chapter 10. You might have heard this story. And the the scenario is this. Martha's in the kitchen, fulfilling her stereotypical role as a mother and a, um, someone in the kitchen, preparing food, taking care of the house, um, all of which are good things, I should say. She's fulfilling her role there in that traditional society. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, verse 39 says, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha starts complaining to Jesus that Mary's not helping, basically. And Jesus upturns the stereotype of the day and says, Martha, I see that you're worried about a number of things, but that which is necessary, Mary has chosen. In other words, Jesus commends Mary, and he calms Martha. What's going on? Well, to understand what's going on, usually people treat this passage as like a, like a text by which to say, hey, don't be a Martha, be a Mary. Be someone who's like slow and, and peaceful and worships Jesus, and it's really nice, and don't be busy in the kitchen and ignore Jesus in your life. It's not what the point of the passage is. It's not what it's about. There's one other time that the writer of this gospel uses a similar phrase to describe what Mary's doing that Jesus commends. And it's in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. In verse 3, Luke records Paul, the apostle, talking about his training under the rabbi Gamaliel. And it says this, I am a Jew, Paul says, 
born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. So here's the interesting thing about this passage. What Paul is describing is his apprenticeship as a disciple under the rabbi Gamaliel. And the purpose of discipleship is not that you'd learn things so you can pass an exam, but it's that you yourself would learn in such a way that you open up the possibility of becoming a rabbi yourself one day, or in other words, an authoritative teacher. That's what discipleship was all about. It was apprenticeship. You only got chosen as a disciple if you already had potential to be a rabbi yourself. And so when Paul describes himself as doing that, and Jesus has Mary sitting at his feet, here's what Jesus is commending. He's commending Mary for being a disciple. Not just a disciple in the general sense, but a disciple in such a way that it opens up the possibility that she herself could be an authoritative teacher. Here's the point. Jesus is not just making a statement about who he saw women as in this passage. He's making a statement about who he thinks women can become. And Jesus himself, he envisioned women becoming teachers in the school of life that he started. That's what's happening in this passage. It's the ultimate vindication of a woman's role in a beautiful way. Well, let me put it in other words. He, he expected women to teach in the church. That's what Jesus expected. So what's the point? The point is that the weight of biblical evidence, it points, it commissions, it celebrates, and it raises up the vision of women in ministry and church leadership. Dorothy Sayers, a 20th century English novelist and poet, she put it like this when she was reflecting on how Jesus interacted with women in the scriptures. She said, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arc jokes about them, never treated them as, oh, the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them. No, he, he rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension. He took their arguments and questions seriously. He never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female. He had no axe to grind, no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. That's Jesus. So what does this mean for us? Point one. I think number one, it means we need to look for women in the Bible. Um, I've had to learn to do this, and it's been an absolute delight. I didn't realize that Romans 16, Paul commends more women than men. It's not a negative statement on men. It just, it just goes to show that we're not, we've got eyes not to see it. We're selectively blind when we come to read the Bible, and the ministry of women in the, in the Bible is actually amazing. Second, we need to honor the women in our midst. Um, just to name one person in my life who's really blessed me, when Kath and I were um, sort of exploring doing ministry at New Life, we went to New Life Rabina um, in week four of your series on Genesis. And that week, someone preached on Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And up until that point in my life, I'd actually never understood that story. I didn't understand why God judged one of them more harshly than another. If you've read the story, you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, but that week, Anna Couston, small groups pastor at Rabina, she got up and she unpacked the scriptures so beautifully and so faithfully. And she really illuminated that text to me in a way that I hadn't had anyone do before. And it really blessed me and made me worship Jesus. I want to honor Anna. And lastly, we should just pray for the future of our church. Um, right now, we've got male leaders across all of our church and some female leaders. Um, are there ways in which we could pray that God would outpour more women leaders in our midst? Um, why not a female church planter? You know, I'm not saying that's exactly what we're doing, but 
Why would that not be the case if this is what God himself commissions and equips and celebrates in the, in the scriptures? Um, maybe we could partner with God in praying for that. So one, the pull of biblical evidence, and two, a passage which I reread. So here's the thing. Most people will agree with most of what I've said up until a point. They'll have one reservation, and they'll say, yes, I think women can lead in a general way. Yes, I think God calls women to ministry, but I'm not sure if they can be like the elder or the ordained minister or the senior pastor in a church. And the reason people say that is because of two texts in the New Testament that are these. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 to 38, and 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 15. Two passages where Paul seems to explicitly deny women authority and teaching in the church. So that's my sermon done. I'll leave it there. I'm just kidding. Um, Let's just unpack one. And I'll unpack the easier one. I'm just kidding. I'll unpack what I think is the hardest one. 1 Timothy 2. Uh, Paul says this in verse 11. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I'm reading from the ESV, if that's helpful. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Big passage. It appears to say that no woman can ever teach or have authority over a man. And if you're unsure about it, Paul seems to draw on the creation story to sort of bolster his point. You know, he goes to Adam and Eve. and He seems to suggest that women cannot teach the Bible because Eve, and hence all women, are more susceptible to deception. In short, women cannot speak, teach authoritatively, or lead local churches. That's what Paul seems to say in this passage. And there's like three reactions people have. Some people want to tear this passage out of the Bible. Other people want to just transplant it from that context into ours. Uh, But our job is to translate it, to think what's going on in that scenario, what might be happening in our world, and what does Paul ultimately commend here. We can't tear it out. We can't transplant it. We should translate it. I used to read the passage like the way I just suggested it seems to come across. And when people read it that way, they usually say, oh, see, this is the most plain reading of this passage. And I'll agree. If you take verses 11 to 15 out of 1 Timothy 2, out of the larger book of the Bible, this seems like the most plain way to read this passage. And therefore, you draw those conclusions. Here's four things I learned that helped me read this passage in a helpful light uh, in the larger context of the weight of biblical evidence pointing towards women in ministry and leadership. First thing I came to see is that there's no such thing as a plain reading of the Bible. A plain reading of the Bible is just a reading of the Bible that doesn't do the hard work of understanding the context behind a particular passage. Let me put it this way. All of us come to the Bible with a lens. And if we don't explore the context behind a passage, we're usually just reading our context into the passage. And we're assuming, if we ask a question about women in leadership, we're assuming that this passage exists to answer that question. And that's a debatable thing. Our job is not to take the Bible at face value, plain reading. It's to take the Bible seriously. And taking the Bible seriously means examining the context behind the passages that we read. Second, I came to see that verse 12 is actually incredibly difficult to translate. This is probably the most dense part of the sermon, by the way, just as you're like checking out. So just like track with me for a second. Verse 12 is actually really difficult to translate. Paul says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. But that second word, exercise authority, It comes from a Greek word that we don't have anywhere else in the Bible. Um, It's actually incredibly rare in ancient Greek literature. 
Now, why does this matter? It matters because it's actually really difficult to find sources that you, you can use to give you a dictionary definition of what this word means. Some people think the debate sort of falls on two sides. Some people think that Paul's saying something positive here. Other people think that Paul is saying something negative. A positive translation claims that Paul is saying this to women. He says, don't have authority over a man. That's a positive translation. Other people think it's a negative translation, which they would translate like this. Um, it would say, don't take authority from a man. And the debate falls on two sides. People much smarter than me, and even in my own research around this term, I've decided, it is contested, but I've decided, and a number of great scholars that I um, really enjoy their work, um, that I think it's a negative translation. I think Paul here uh, is saying that women should not take authority from men, or in other words, usurp the authority that's already been distributed. Before, I intentionally quoted the ESV, which I think gets this wrong. It's a translation of the Bible. The NIV, the MEB, and the, K the KJV, they get this right in my reading of the term. So here's what this suggests. It suggests that Paul, it suggests that the problem is not women having authority, but that Paul is arguing that women usurping authority that's already distributed is itself the problem. So here's the real question. Is there evidence that suggests that this is itself the case? Third point. Um, the context behind the letter. Really helpful. See, Paul writes to the Ephesian churches. What we know about Ephesus from the first century is that it was a home, it was a home to the cult of Artemis. There's a novel about the cult of Artemis that actually survives from the first century, written in Paul's day. And what we know about the cult of Artemis is that it's a woman-only cult. You can't be a priest in the cult of Artemis if you're a guy. Women um, rule the day in that cult. But then... Christianity comes to town, and the temple starts losing those who are faithful to it. These women, who would have gone from the cult of Artemis into the house churches, they're highly educated, they've got authority, they would have expected to play an authoritative role in Christian meetings without first having undergone proper discipleship and teaching. And even worse, one of the heresies that they were putting around and propagating was that women were superior to men. So to put it in sort of a summary terms, Paul is most likely addressing cult women who are not simply trying to usurp authority in the church, they're trying to demote men. That's the context behind the letter. And finally, I came to see that Paul's use of the creation story isn't as straightforward as we seem. See, we assume that Paul's extracting this like universal principle from Adam and Eve, by which to say that all women therefore are deceived more easily. Two things about that. One, we probably wouldn't be happy to say that just generally as a church anyway. But two, Paul doesn't use the creation narrative consistently across the Bible. He does something more nuanced with it. And we should follow him where he does so. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3, Paul says this. He said, I'm afraid to the Corinthians that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's interesting about Paul's use of Eve in that story is he uses the story of Eve to talk to men and women in Corinth. He, talks, he uses the story of Eve's deception to talk to men and women in Corinth. So what's Paul doing there? He's applying locally the model of Eve's deception to the context that he's writing to, which means this. What's he doing in, in Ephesus? Paul is using the model of Eve as the deceived one to talk specifically to Ephesian women who themselves are arrogant, ex-cult women, 
who think that they can usurp authority in the church without having first undergone proper training and teaching and discipleship. It's a local application, not a universal principle. What's the point? The larger point is that this text does not serve to give us a timeless church hierarchy with men at the top and women at the bottom. Paul is addressing a problem in the church, a contextual problem, that he uses this creation story to humble those listening. Nijay Gupta, a New Testament scholar, he put it like this. He said, the mentioning of Eve's deception by Paul is his way of humbling any arrogant Ephesian women who want to cause trouble for the men believing that they were wiser. Now, why is all this important? Let me boil it down. Why is all this important? It's important because this is one of the major texts people use, even though the weight of biblical evidence pulls one way. They say, well, Paul clearly is against women in leadership and teaching. Not if this is a contextual problem that Paul's addressing with this passage. Not at all. In fact, we know Paul, if we just read Romans 16, we know Paul celebrates commissions and wants women in leadership and ministry, doing a whole host of activity for Jesus and the glory of God. So one, the pull of biblical evidence, and two, a passage which I learned to read differently. Just before we move into time of response, I'd just love to invite the band just to come up and join me here. I, um, I want to boil it down to this, and it's just a moment of honesty. I've changed my thoughts on this over the years. This isn't something that I give to you uh, having read like a three-minute Reader's Digest on this topic. This is something I've sat in, wrestled through, prayed through, mulled over, and meditated on. And the more I read the Scriptures, and the more I hear stories of women in ministry in our day and age, the more my heart's broken. Because the kind of stories you hear of women being held back, women being thought of as not enough, and men maintaining power and leadership in roles that they themselves may not be best fit for, purely by virtue of having a Y chromosome being allowed in. It's actually heartbreaking. Now, even as I say this, some people might think, well, hold on, are we... Like, is this just about being on the right side of history? No, this is about being, going where the Scriptures lead. This is about following the voice of Jesus through the passages of Scripture to be the kind of church that He's always called us to be. I'm interested in the scriptures and what they invite us into. And they invite us, they exhort us, and they challenge us to be a church made up of women men, women and men, disciples, leaders, preachers, teachers, church planters, thinkers, and any role that you could think of that would be best fitted, not by someone with the right chromosomes or gender or sex, but with the right gifting. So here's the question that this all boils down to. What's the mission of God doing? And what is the Spirit of God doing as He calls and equips those in the church to take the gospel forward? To pursue this would be an act of obedience. To pursue this model of church would be an act of obedience to the Scriptures. I like what Beth Allison Barr wrote. She said this, What if we remembered that women have always been leaders, teachers and preachers, even in evangelical history? What if our seminaries used textbooks that included women? What if our Sunday school and Bible study curriculum correctly reflected Junior as an apostle, Priscilla as a co-worker? What if we recognize women's leadership the same way that Paul did throughout his letters, even entrusting the letter to the Romans to the deacon Phoebe? What if we listen to women in our evangelical churches the same way Jesus listened to women? Women, they stand with a great cloud of witnesses. We always have. I started this sermon by talking about a number of different reactions that could be present in the room. I'd love to just finish by naming some of the ways that each of us could be feeling now. 
Some of you, as I've spoken, you've just been excited about me. Stop speaking. That's fine. Take my notes. Keep conversing with Scott, the team here. Take the conversation forward. For others of you, this has been sort of like a little, in, you know, a bit of an injection to this topic, but you need to hear more uh, in order for you to think faithfully and fruitfully about this. I just encourage you, don't let this be the end of the conversation. Start a dialogue with our church on this. This is something we're passionate about in all four. So take the conversation further. But for others of you, you might be a woman in the room and you're very aware that there might be a gifting in you, sort of the machinations of the Spirit in your life calling and equipping and gifting you uh, to be the kind of minister that God calls you to be. But you might have felt held back, whether because you didn't know where this church stood on this, whether because you felt uh, maybe in other church experiences or traditions or even in the secular world that, you know, you're a woman and that's your place and you can't. You might be empowered right now. And I want to pray that you'd actually walk out of here today feeling a sense of commission, celebration, and that you yourself would just have a, a, a higher ceiling to aim your ministry gifting on. Um, that might be you today. You might be a man. And this is something I do all the time. And you might actually just be very aware that you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, have held women back in the church, in your life, in the secular world. And there might be an element of repentance that you need to do today if you've taken this topic where we've led it. And so I just want to make space for each of you today, wherever you're at, to receive prayer, to respond to God in worship. So the prayer team's going to come down. We're going to join together in worship. And as that happens, um, I just invite you, if you need to think more, go for it. If you need a sense of commissioning and celebration from your brothers and sisters in Christ here today, come forward and receive prayer. If you want to repent for the ways you've intentionally or unintentionally held back the ministry and the leadership of women, come forward and repent, and I will join you in that process. As the band starts, let me just kick us off in prayer, and we'll sing together in worship. Your love, thank you for your heart, and thank you, God, that the gospel's so great and the mission of God so propelling that you call and equip both men and women to serve in your church as disciples, as learners, but Lord, too, as, as leaders and as ministers of your gospel. And so, Father, today we celebrate the leadership of the ministry of women. We, be, we give you our hearts, Father, knowing that you, um, you long just to make us um, see rightly what you're doing in the world through the church. And we ask today, Lord, that you pour out your spirit on this church. Would your kingdom come here in Kulangada? as it is in heaven. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen.